Um, our scripture comes from Zechariah 12, 10 through 13, and 1, and verses 7 through 9. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the, house of the, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by it themselves. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Carrie. Um, Y'all need to see this. I got a nice little note here from a Matt Loves to Draw. Uh, it's not signed, but it says, Hi, Ben, to greet me to the pulpit. So you all didn't get that on your seat, I bet. Well, welcome. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Ben. Uh, I'm the uh, associate pastor here, and we're thrilled to have you worship with us. If you have uh, been with us over the last couple of weeks, you know we have been doing something a little bit strange. Uh, we've been looking at this kind of obscure book from the Old Testament uh, and trying to understand, trying to wrap our brains around the lives of these people who lived in the 6th century B.C., people who had been, whose families have been yanked, taken as prisoners of war from their homeland and who have been sent back into this war-torn homeland of their ancestors, a place that they have always been told is supposed to be a place of of blessing, supposed to be a place of, of, of security, a, a place for them to grow and to prosper. And as these people are coming back, God gives them all sorts of, of visions and, and, and dreams of what he is going to do in their midst, the way that he is going to form them as a people, the way he is going to bless the world through them. And so we've had sermons over the last several weeks titled things like, you know, Dreaming of, of Peace. Sounds pretty good, right? Dreaming of, of power. That's, that's, that's great for people who have been stripped of power. Dreaming of love. Dreaming, dreaming of a king. Dreaming of rest. We like that one so much we did it twice, actually. But then we get to this passage. Just as we're starting to kind of get into our groove of Zechariah, God says, all right, uh, people of God, you uh, refugees, you exiles, you people who have been oppressed and maligned and insecure for decades of time. He says, I'm going to give you a dream of what I'm going to do in the future. And this is how it goes. There's going to be a king among you, a, a king who's so 
good and, and trustworthy, a God whose protection and his love and guidance is so secure that he's like a shepherd caring for his sheep. That's you. You're the sheep. And uh, when that shepherd is there, I'm going to rise up a, a sword and kill the shepherd, and you, the sheep, are going to be scattered all over. Two-thirds of you are not going to make it. You're going to perish. And the third of you that does perish, this is how what your experience is going to be like. You're, it's going to be like you're a piece of metal that's thrown into a, a crucible, melted down to have all the impurities burned away. And you can imagine they're sitting there going, I thought we already went through all of this. I thought our grandfathers went through being scattered abroad to the nations. I, I thought that we had already had enough of the pain and the suffering. Isn't it time, God, for the, for the goodness? Isn't it time now for us to be safe? Isn't it time for us to not feel that anxiety anymore? It's really hard to imagine that this dream sounds too dreamy for these folks. And they may be wondering where and what God is trying to do in it. How can what God be saying be good? So that's our question for us, though, as well this morning. How is it that this vision of this massive disruption, this vision of, of scattering and, and this vision of suffering be for the good of the people of Israel who lived in the, the eighth or 6th century B.C. and be good for the people who live in America in the 22nd century A.D.? We're going to do it by taking two looks. First, I want to take a, a little deeper dive. What is this dream? What is it uh, that, that, that their experience is like? What does Zechariah paint that for us? And once we see that and we, and we can see the challenge that that embraces, we're going to look at two different ways that we can respond, two different ways that we can see uh, or, or at least that we could be tempted to respond to the vision that God has given to us. Spoiler alert, I like one of those visions, one of those responses better than the other. So we'll, we'll get there uh, here in a few minutes. But first, what is this dream? What is this dream uh, uh, that they are seeing? What is the vision that God has set before them? If you notice, as Carrie was reading, that there are, in this uh, section, there's actually two different uh, visions that are given, and they're set apart from each other slightly. But I think the best way to understand them is, is that they go hand in hand, that they refer one to the other, that they are referring at least to uh, very similar or overlapping events. And so we can see here uh, in 12.10 that God sets out this same confusing, strange claim. If we you know, did a little sentence diagramming, we could remove out some clauses, and it would say this. I will pour out a spirit of grace so that they shall mourn and weep bitterly. I will set out a spirit of grace so that they shall mourn and weep bitterly. And we go, that doesn't sound good. But what do you mean, God? What is it, what is it that you're saying? In, verse, in chapter 12, God has just described this battle. And so presumably the, the people's brains are picturing a, a battle. And there's this character in here, the one who is pierced. Most scholars would think that the, the first readers would uh, naturally read this to be the king. 
their leader, the one who gives them hope and, and security for the future. But their king doesn't make it. He's pierced. It doesn't mean his ears were pierced. It means a sword was stuck in, a spear was stuck into his side, that, that some sharp object has impaled him almost certainly to the point of death. And what we see these people experiencing in the, mid, in the midst of this crucible is intense internal angst. Over and over it tells us that they were mourning, right? That they shall mourn for one as one mourns for an only child in verse 10. They'll weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. It's hard to conjure up the right words to draw how the intensity of that kind of language. But if you've had someone who's close to you die, if you've been uh, uh, one who has, so to speak, survived the, the loss of a close one, you might have a picture. A couple years ago, um, our next-door neighbor who lived next to us uh, she took her own life. And as we as a family are wrestling with and grappling with that reality, the, the, the kinds of questions we asked ourselves are, are probably questions that you've asked yourself at various places in life. How did this happen? Why is her life in, in such, end in such a, a hard place and my life be in such a good place? Could we have helped her? Could we have intervened? Did we do enough to remind her and tell her that we loved her and that we cared for her, that we wanted to be there with her? The loss of this dear woman from our lives was painful over and over again. It was a, it was a terrible loss, but the loss was made worse by this, this that we are okay and that she is now gone. If you've, uh, you know, uh, the, oftentimes psychologists talk about survivor's guilt in, the, in terms of, of big calamities, things like 9-11, we'll hear stories over and over again of people asking these questions, the guilt that they feel, and it is intense and it is raw, but it's only half of what these people are experiencing, because what these people are experiencing is not survivor's guilt. What these people are experiencing is guilt, guilt. They're not asking, what, what could I have done better? They're saying, look at what my hands have done. Because in verse 10, it tells us, read it again, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 10. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns over an only child. That the mourners that we see on the field of battle this day are the murderers of this king. So when they're looking at the, the death and the loss of this king, the confusion that surrounds it, the insecurity of the future, it's not a, a, a hypothetical, I wish I would have done better. It is a devastating blood on your hands guilt that they are experiencing. And it is intense, and it is deep, it is personal. If you believe the story of the Bible, the story of the Bible goes 
a lot like this vision does. That there is a, 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 a king who reigns over heaven and earth. One who has made the world and has loved it and guided it as a shepherd guides its sheep. And yet, in the midst of, of the battle, in the midst of life, those sheep who should have protected him, the sheep who should have cared for him, the sheep who should have followed after him, rose up in rebellion against him. That we... In, in uh, a metaphorical sense, and as we'll see later, a not-so-metaphorical sense, have uh, uh, rebelled against the king, that we, in our efforts to take matters into our own hands, have killed the king of the world, who is God. If God is a king, then we have committed the insurrection, the coup that, that threw him from the throne. If, if earth is, is a ship, then we have been mutinous. We've thrown him overboard in our attempts to live life the way that we want to live. And the story of the Bible is is that we are people who have blood on our hands. That we have guilt, guilt in front of us because we have each individually and corporately participated in that dismantling of the world. It's not usually how we open sermons, though, is it? We don't normally open and say, you are guilty of of murdering the king of the world. And the reason we don't do that very often is is because we know, as preachers, we know the kind of of response that guilt brings. We know that to say uh, to someone, you are guilty, implies something else because each of us in this room has been guilty enough to know that we associate guilt with rejection. That if I am guilty, if I have done wrong, then we have lived in enough relationships with friendships, with your parents, with whoever else there is, that you know that that if you have harmed someone, if you have screwed up, that the chances are very, very, very high that they will reject you, that they'll turn a cold shoulder, that they'll keep you at arm's length at the very least. And so when we read a story in which the people have struck down and they've killed their king, we want nothing to do with the guilt. And so we create a different story for ourselves. So if the dream tells us that we are a people who have committed this treason against God, then the the, the first and and most likely place that our hearts are going to go is we are going to want to go, no, we're not guilty. We want to distance ourselves from, from guilt because we want to distance ourselves from rejection. And we even tell stories this way, right? And so, uh, I'm sorry, let me go back. So the first response, I'm going to call this the, the gospel of acceptance. The gospel of acceptance. And we can tell the story of the gospel of acceptance uh, through our, one of our dear friends. Some of us have stayed with this person a long time, Princess Elsa from the movie Frozen. Movie Frozen, you remember that? You all remember this, right? Uh, this is, some of you with children in the right age range definitely know this. You've been trying to forget uh, the song Let It Go. You've been trying to get out of your brain for years and still, it, it, it sneaks back in, right? You can hear Elsa's 
voice as she sings, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, right? Let it go. But have you thought about, like, the terrible things that Elsa does in this movie? Like, Elsa is a horrible person in this movie, now, some of you are already, you don't, you're, you're, you're ready, you get your replies back. You're, you're upset that I'm bashing Elsa. But the story of Elsa is, is she is this princess, right? And she has these magical powers where she can, I don't know the right way to describe this, create icy blasts. She can create snow. She can freeze things. Uh, if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about, right? And the movie opens uh, when, when she unintentionally, but also actually uh, almost kills her baby sister, right? And her fear of rejection over that causes her to, to push even farther away from, from that sister. And we see oh, years and years and years where she has isolated her sister. And even after her parents have perished and, and her, her sister Anna is weeping and is lonely and is afraid, and we see Elsa close the door between them. The isolation is real. And then the day comes when Elsa is to be coronated and, 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 you know, through a series of events ends up putting the whole kingdom under this, this curse of snow and frozen ice. And the people are suffering and alone and her sister goes to her and, and she sicks like a big giant snow monster upon her sister. And in her, in her confusion, in her hurt, in her rage, she ends up putting an icy blast right through her sister's heart. An icy blast that, that would prove fatal. She killed her sister. And yet, when the story is wrapped up, when the, when the end of the story comes, what Elsa has done, intentionally or unintentionally. Elsa is able to just hear this, this kind of vague, uh, this vague idea of like, oh, true love can, throw, can thaw a frozen heart. And all of a sudden, just like that, she goes, oh, love. And without apologizing to anybody, without trying to make anything right, without dealing with what she has done in the past, she immediately is able to turn the kingdom back into this oasis. And the sun comes out and the birds begin to sing. It's a gospel of acceptance. That if, you, if you're really loved by somebody, if somebody really cares about you, then what you have done to them, the things that you have inflicted upon the world, those don't ultimately really matter, do they? What matters is, is that somebody is able to look at even your faults and go, you know, that's just part of their story. They're just going through a hard time. That's just their coping mechanism. And so we, we love this. We love this because we do not want to come face to face with guilt. Because to come face to face with guilt is to come face to face with our fear of rejection. And we'll do anything to believe the story that Elsa tells us, including coming to church and going, now all that, all that stuff about sin, all that stuff uh, uh, about doing wrong things, can't we just 
gloss over that. Maybe for some of us, it goes a lot deeper than that, though. You go, see, that, that, that's why I don't trust churches. That's why I don't trust Christians is because you always come back to this refrain. You, see, you act like you're accepting of everybody, but then you tell people what they did wrong. And if you tell people what they did wrong, then you're rejecting them. And so we, uh, more often than not, are going to choose to believe that, that somehow the misdeeds, somehow the hurts and the pains we have caused others can just go away if we can accept ourselves and if someone we love accepts us. The problem when you impose that upon the story of Zechariah is, is that it just doesn't hold up to real life. It doesn't hold up to real life because real damage requires real repair, right? Real damage requires real repair. In this story of acceptance, when, when a vague sense of love can cover over everything and the birds come out and sing the piercing, the stabbing, the harm, it's not been dealt with, has it? The gospel of acceptance doesn't work because it ignores the fact that there is a problem between us. I read an article this week, uh, and it was, it was citing this study done by some Israeli psychologists, right? And they tried to, in a non-religious context, but they said they tried to create two groups of people, one who felt that they had harmed the other person and, and another group who felt that they had been harmed in relationship, and they did all these studies to understand uh, what they were feeling, what they were thinking as they were going through. And they, they concluded that, that both sides have such a, a feeling of an acute psychological threat, right? That neither one of them, neither one of their anxieties can come down. Neither one of them can, can be restored to the way they were until that thing is dealt with between them. There's something between they and the other party that must be acknowledged. And so these secular psychologists say broken relationships can't move forward until atonement has been made by the perpetrator and absolution granted by the victim. If that's true in our relationships with one another, how much more true is that in our relationship with God? That if there is something that is between us, if our actions have participated in the, in the harming of God's world, then something must transpire between us. Acceptance speaks in vague terms and, in, and essentially is asking us just to turn our head away from what we have done. But we can't ignore the problems like that. The other problem with acceptance is, of course, it has limits. As much as, as we, we talk in our world and our wider culture about accepting all people, right? And typically what we mean by that is, is that we look, with not, we, we look in non-judgment upon other people. That we don't want to call what they do or the decisions that they make wrong or, or to put a, a moral category upon it. Because, again, we, we feel like that's uh, ostracizing them. But even in that system, even if you're most committed to this idea of acceptance, acceptance still has limits, right? Even in, in Frozen, Elsa 
acceptance was able to be granted to Elsa. She was able to, all her misdeeds were able to be cloaked over with a, a beautiful sunlight and the birds singing. But Prince Hans, okay, what he did was a little too much. He needed to get punched in the face and knocked overboard, right? And in your life, it's the same story, right? That, that, that there is some line, some line that, that ultimately only you can be the judge of, that, that people, when they've crossed that line, that's when they're simply toxic. They're simply, their views are so uh, regressive. Their, their views are simply so harmful that they must be excluded from the circle of, of acceptance, and so we, we maintain this idea that acceptance will heal all our wounds because we've, we've ignored all of the people who are outside of that circle, the people who have caused real harm, the people who have caused real pain, the people who have stabbed someone in the back. Those people are outside the realm of what acceptance can possibly accept. And so acceptance at its end is not really too accepting overall, is it? But there's a different story we can believe. There's a different story than the gospel of acceptance, and it comes back to us and it says, you know, maybe, maybe guilt is not equivalent to rejection. Maybe the harm that has been done in the world, maybe the looking at and knowing and understanding and mourning, as our people in our text here have, maybe mourning and looking soberly at what we have done in the world does not lead to rejection, does not lead to hostility. Maybe it leads to something good. Maybe it leads to something right. And so against the gospel of, of mere acceptance, we have the gospel of Jesus. Couldn't come up with a creative way to say it, guys. The gospel of Jesus. And look at, at, at the way that this narrative in Zechariah plays out. Because spoiler alert, uh, Jesus is the one who is pierced in the field of battle by those closest to him. It is Jesus who is the shepherd who is struck down and destroyed. And yet, and yet, if we read the story of Zechariah, we have this group of people who are guilty, guilty, guilty of murdering their king, Jesus. And yet, look at where their mourning goes. Look at, at, at what happens when they look upon him whom they have pierced. What happens? Well, in, verse, in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, On that day... There shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. You get that? God, uh, Elsa just says, look, uh, I embrace love and all her problems go away. But do they? Do they? I can keep a pretty good track record of, of you know, what my sister did back in 1990 and she never apologized for. Right, if there's something between us, especially something as significant as me stabbing you in the back, I think that that is a problem that has to be absolved. And the story of Jesus goes like this, that it is precisely at that moment 
when the harm has been inflicted upon Jesus. It is precisely in that moment when, when the people see what they have done and they grieve and they mourn that the one whom they have harmed brings cleansing. He removes the barrier between them. He breaks the, the hostility that is in naturally there. Acceptance has, the, the gospel of acceptance has no power to remove what separates us. It has no power to clean away the barriers that we have put up, the walls we have built between us. But Jesus in his suffering is able to leave us into repaired relationships with one another and repaired relationships with him. We don't have to ignore the hurt. We don't have to ignore the pain. We don't have to ignore and pretend like what we have done is, is amoral. We can look at the harm that we have done on the world. We can look at the harm we have done on Christ because we know that our guilt does not lead to our rejection. Our guilt leads us to Jesus, and Jesus removes the barriers between us. Look at the second uh, section here, though, the, the, the section about the shepherd being struck down. And this story, which, again, I'm, I'm arguing runs analogous to and alongside with the, the story in chapter 12, starting in verse 10. See what the, the, the acknowledgement of guilt leads these people. What is the end result of this story? In the end of verse 9. God says, and they will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. See, the gospel of Jesus, <laughs> the gospel of Jesus doesn't have a limit, does it? The gospel of Jesus doesn't lead us into a, a, a place of rejection. In fact, it leads us to a place of radical belonging. It leads us in, the, in a moment of, of our greatest fear and our greatest shame, our greatest sense of confusion about who we are and, and our role in the world. And it says, if they call upon my name, if you will acknowledge what it, that if you will look to me to be the one who saves you, then what you can have is not, rede is not rejection. It doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter what you have done. See, as humans, we can only accept people to a certain amount, right? And at a certain level, we just have to, to lock people away. But the gospel of Jesus can be preached just as easily on death row as it can be preached in this room here today. The gospel of Jesus can go to those who have, have inflicted the worst kinds of harms on the world and who have blasphemed the name of their creator so consistently and forcefully. And God is able, because of the sufferings of Jesus... To say what has stood between us will stand um, between us no longer. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And so the question that comes to us then is this. 
whether that experience comes to you today or whether the experience comes to you tomorrow or in five years from now or 20 years from now or 50 years from now, where do you go with your guilt? Where do you go with your shame? I'm telling you right now, you're going to be tempted to go and, and to find some way to gloss over it, to say, ah, oh, well, uh, so-and-so still accepts me. Or to say, well, if I can just accept myself, then I'll be okay. But remember that in the gospel of Jesus, your guilt does not lead to your rejection. Your guilt leads to your inclusion, a belonging in Jesus that can never be broken, an unconditional belonging, because it's not based upon you. It's based upon the one who suffered and died on your behalf. That's why Jesus, when he gathered with his disciples, knowing full well what was about to happen, knowing full well that he was about to be tortured and abused and be hung on a cross, and knowing full well that those people who gathered at the table with him were going to be guilty of abandonment and treason and stabbing him in the back, he said to them, remember that story that Zechariah told? The part about the shepherd who's struck down and the sheep are scattered. Remember how that ends. The sheep are brought back to the table. The sheep have a promise relationship with God that they cannot separate themselves from. If you're here this morning and guilt is in your veins, do not turn away from it. But turn to the one who was pierced. Turn to the one who is struck down so that he could be with you. Because it's only in the gospel of Jesus, it is only in the sufferings of Christ that we can find our lives restored. Pray with me. Father, we come to you, the one who is pierced, the one who is broken, the one who knowingly gave himself for us. And we pray, Father, that you would give us the strength to look to you in the moments of our guilt, in the moments of our shame. God, that you would give us the, the, the vision that our restoration does not come by eliminating guilt from our dictionaries, but by adding a picture of Jesus that is so large that guilt can't even remain in the picture. Father, be with us as we go from this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.